thank you to Ian for leading this evening. That was much appreciated. And to Brian once again, thank you for your words of welcome and for the opportunity to come and share God's word today. It has indeed been a privilege to do so. Um, those sweets really ran the gauntlet, didn't they? To actually, to actually get here and survive, and then survive all those verses of that song as well, Brian. Um, that was great. So, um, yes, it's lovely to be here and lovely to share God's word with you. If you have your Bible, please, if you'd turn me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 28. Um, perhaps a strange passage you may think to come to this evening, but um, hopefully God will, um, will help us this evening and we'll learn uh, something new or be reminded of something we already know. Genesis 28. And we're going to break in, into the chapter halfway through, and we're going to start at verse 10. And God's word says, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to the heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been loose previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I may come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. I pray that God will bless the public reading of his word. Let's just bow for a moment's prayer. Let's pray for ourselves as we listen to God's word, perhaps those online as well listening, that God will speak this evening um, to hearts and lives. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you, Lord, for the privileges which are ours today, privilege of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, privileges of worshiping you in spirit and in truth, privileges of your word, privileges of remembering the Lord Jesus Christ, around the table this morning. Privileges even tonight of being here to hear your word. Lord, we thank you for all of these because so many do not have such privileges. And I pray as we come to your word that, Lord, you would quieten our hearts. 
We ask that you would speak to our hearts. We ask as Jacob heard the voice of God that we too would hear the voice of God this evening. As the one that comes to encourage, the one that comes to challenge, the one that come that wakes the dead. So Lord, we ask for your help. We thank you also this morning for what we heard of, of the young people going to serve you over the summer. And we pray for each of them, Lord. Lord, we pray for Victoria and for Daniel, for Faith and Joanna. And we pray, Lord, for the teams they'll go on. We pray you'd bless them. We pray, Father, that you would use them and make them a blessing. And that, Lord, just as you make them a blessing, that they would know the blessing of God, that what you do in them will be just as important as what they do for you. So, Lord, be with them, we pray. And all the outreach activities that are planned coming up here over these next months, Lord, we ask just for the help of the Spirit of God in those that you would draw people to know the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis, as you know, was a great author of the past. And one day, his colleagues, when he was in Oxford University, where he called himself a reluctant convert, his colleagues were discussing the different religions of the world. He was walking past, and they were talking about things like morality and accountability and judgment and worship. And they called him into the room as he walked past, and they said to him, Jack, as was his nickname, can you write something on the board which is not there, which belongs and is unique to Christianity? And he took the chalk and he walked up to the board and he wrote the word grace. Grace is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. At its core, Christianity is not good advice about what we must do for God. It is good news about what God has done for us. It's not primarily instructions about morality or accountability or goodness, but it is a declaration of the grace of God. What is grace? We often hear it talked about, but what is grace? Here's a definition I read this week. Grace is that most wonderful truth that God, out of a heart of love, reaches out to lost and sinful people, favors them in ways that they do not deserve, and grants them blessings that they could never earn. I certainly couldn't say it any better than that. The most wonderful truth that God, out of a heart of love, reaches out to lost and sinful people, favors them in ways that they do not deserve, and grants them blessings that they could never earn. Ian said it, didn't it? We are saved by grace. No one will be saved any other way apart from the grace of God. Grace is what God is like. It is God's goodness. It is God's kindness of heart. There is no meanness. There is no resentment. There is no rancor in God. Yes, His grace works in harmony with His justice and His righteousness. But grace is the goodness of God. We want to look tonight at the grace of God to a man in the story. 
you might say, well, where do we find it? We will find it as, as we go through the story. It's a beautiful story. It's a, it's a wonderful story. It's a story perhaps you read in Sunday school or were taught in Sunday school. But I want to, before we get to that, I want to look a little bit at the context of, if you go back a few chapters, you will see that this family that Jacob is in is an absolute sorry mess. It's a chaotic mess. And Jacob almost gets bad press, doesn't he? He gets the bad deal usually out of all of this. But if we look back at the family, the whole family is a sorry mess. Let's look back very quickly just to chapter 25 and verse 34. And the story is that Jacob has cooked the stew And Esau has come in from the field, and he's weary. And Jacob basically tells him, sell me your birthright for a pot of stew. Look at the last line of verse 34. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. He sold his birthright for a plate of stew. I thought about that as I was reading it, and I thought, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And many people today sell their soul for many things, don't they? They sell it for fame, for money, for love, for relationships, sometimes for nothing. And as I was reading that, Esau has no, he's so indifferent to this covenant life that is he has. So indifferent to it. Very challenging. He's so indifferent, but he's so unconcerned as well about his life. You will read, if you read on in the story, you will find that he marries two Hittite women, even against the, the command of God. So the distinctiveness that he should have had, he's not even interested in it. The things of God are no concern to Esau. No concern. If you read on in the story, you will find that Rebecca, Jacob's mother, has been told that the older son will serve the younger son. She must have told that to her husband Isaac. And yet Isaac plans to give the blessing to the older son. So he has no concern for the clear commandments of God either. And Rebecca then sets about trying to bring things together that Jacob can get the blessing. She seeks to help God along. And Jacob goes along with her plan. You can see the pervasive perversity of this family. And this is the family that God is going to bless the nations by. How on earth is he going to do that? How on earth... Is God going to bless through a family which is a sorry mess? You know, when I read all of the story around it, I thought, what a picture of humanity. What a picture of the pervasive perversity of humanity. What a picture of us all outside of Christ. We have no interest in the things of God. With no concern for the commandments of God, we're indifferent to the call of God. Outside of Christ, as the Bible says, there is not one who does good. 
There is none who are righteous. And it's certainly highlighted in this family. But we're going to look at Jacob in particular. Because what we find as we come to the passage is that Rebekah has once again intervened. And she's asked Jacob to leave. She has asked Jacob to leave the family and get away because Esau now is seeking to kill him. And so he leaves. And that's where we join the story in verse 10. Jacob is on the run. Jacob is on the run and he meets God. So let's look at four very quick things about the grace of God in Jacob's life. I want you to notice, first of all, that the grace of God is surprisingly intrusive. The grace of God is surprisingly intrusive. Someone has said this, things have come to a pretty, pretty pass when religion interferes with our private life. What a statement. Things have come to a pretty pass when religion interferes with our private life. Perhaps the person saying it hadn't read the Bible. They hadn't read that God does interfere. And thankfully, he does interfere. And we see here that he interferes intrusively into Jacob's life. The grace of God is surprisingly intrusive. Jacob comes to a certain place, it tells us. He sleeps and he dreams, and his dream is full of surprises. He hadn't thought when he put his head down to sleep that God in his grace was going to intrude and interfere in his life. It probably was the last thing he was expecting. After all, he's on the run for his life. After the intervention of his mother, Jacob seems to be a guy who gets things done. He seems to be a guy who lived in the fast lane, and now he is passive. He's in a place where God can speak to him, and at God's initiative, God intrudes into his life. As far as Jacob was concerned, God was a million miles away. Jacob was on the run. You know, we can run from God politely. We can run from God religiously. We heard about that this morning from Paul. He ran from God religiously, and we can run from God aggressively. Paul did that too. And Jacob is on the run from God. I wonder where we find ourselves tonight. Perhaps you're here tonight and you've made a claim to know Jesus Christ, but perhaps tonight in your heart, you're on the run from God. Perhaps you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ and you're on the run from God. You know, probably none of us have ever slept. Some of us has never dreamed at Bethel, that's for sure. But perhaps we can remember, perhaps we can remember being surprised when the grace of God intruded into our life. I was 16 years old when the grace of God intruded into my life. I had no time for the things of God. I'm sure you've been to that place yourself. I had no time for the things of God at all. And God, in His grace, intruded into my life. Now, it wasn't like it was here with a, a stairway to heaven. It wasn't with the angels. 
It wasn't on the Damascus road by a bright light. It was right beside my bedside that the grace of God intruded into my life. You know, it wasn't difficult for God to reach Jacob. Even when he was on the run from everyone else, God still reached down in his grace to Jacob. You know, I like to say this. The grace of God can reach wherever you are tonight. It can reach our children. It can reach our colleagues. It reached the Apostle Paul. It reached Jonah, a man on the run, disobedient to God. It reached him, firstly, by the toss of a coin, didn't it? And the preparation of a wind. The preparation of a fish. The preparation of a plant. And God turned up in different ways. Here he turns up with a stairway and the angels. He turns up and it's important. It's important to recognize when the grace of God is intruding into your life. It's important to realize if we sit in the service tonight and you say, well, you know what? That word's speaking to my heart. And perhaps God is speaking into your life in his grace this evening. It's important to recognize that. Jacob does. And we'll see that in a little, in a little minute. But the grace of God is surprisingly intrusive. I want you to notice secondly with me that the grace of God is shockingly offensive. Shockingly offensive. Look down at verses 13 to 15. And you will see, and it says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. They'll spread abroad to the west and the east, the north and the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know, if we look at this promise in context, surely grace offends. God reaffirms his promises that he's made to Abraham and Isaac. Anything Jacob knew of God at this point was second-hand, wasn't it? He had heard the stories of Abraham perhaps in the past. He had heard the stories of Isaac in the past. But Jacob knew nothing of God himself. He had never discovered God. Anything he knew was second-hand. It was handed down. And here God comes and makes the very same promises that he did to Abraham and Isaac. If we, if we read this at the time, if we were there at the time, surely it would have bothered us. Surely it would have caused to think, well, why is God making a promise to Jacob? We've just come out of chapter 27 where we met him, a man who had no ethics, a man who could speak barefaced lies, a man who was a sneak, a man who was a thief, a man who was a manipulator, a self-serving, greedy man. And yet God is making a covenant with him? Surely not. Let's bring it into context a little bit more modern. There was a man called Henry Gorecki. He was a U.S. Army chaplain. 
He was asked to serve among the Nazis at the trial at Nuremberg in 1946. He spoke German, which was one plus in a difficult ministry. And he met with these men who were either to be condemned to death or marooned in prison. He questioned them. He counseled them. He prayed with them. He shared the gospel with them. Henry was no soft touch. He had dealt with with criminals before, but he did notice a genuine change in the attitudes of some of these men, particularly a man who was very arrogant and obnoxious called Ribbentrop. The man seemed to have cast himself upon Christ for mercy. Gorecki's duties as an army chaplain ended in 1950. And after his death... In 1961, his son found a thick file of letters in his desk. When he opened them up, every letter was a vicious assault on Henry Gorecki. They named him a hater of the Jews. They named him as a Nazi lover and said that he could have been hanged at Nuremberg with everybody else. Why the venom? Why so vicious? Well, that's what grace did. That's what grace did. Because grace saved some of those men. And those who have little knowledge of themselves implicitly think that grace is something that surely should not be. Wasn't that the view of the Pharisees? when they ridiculed Jesus for sitting and eating with sinners? Wasn't that the view of the disciples when they came back and found Jesus sitting on the well talking to the Samaritan woman? Who would have thought that grace would reach such people? Who would have thought that grace would reach a religious terrorist like Saul of Tarphus? But you know, we're all Jacob's. Outside of Christ, we are all Jacobs. Let's not think of our actions. Let's think if we have any knowledge of our motives and our imaginations and our thoughts and our desires. Without the grace of God, we would all be lost. It can reach the outcast, it can reach the lost. It can reach the terrorist. It can reach the drug dealer in the neighborhood. It can reach the violent alcoholic. It can reach your colleague who has no time for the things of God. It can reach your friend in your college who ridicules the Christian faith. And it can reach the failed Christian brother or sister who may have offended you or me. That's what the grace of God does. The grace of God is shockingly offensive. I'm sure you've seen the news this week. I was saddened by it all when I read, seen the news of Philip Schofield and all that has gone on. But as you listen to his story on TV, and all he sees ahead is darkness. Very sad, isn't it? He knows nothing of the grace of God. 
He knows nothing of this offensive thing to many people that could reach down and forgive and save him. And I'm sure as Jacob was on the run and on his way away from God, he must have thought, there's no hope for me. Those promises were all made to my grandfather and my father, but there's no hope for me after what I've done. Perhaps you feel like that tonight. Perhaps you feel like you don't know my heart. You don't know my life. You don't know the circumstances that's going on with me. I'm, I'm almost too far gone for God. Or perhaps on the other hand, we're like Paul we heard about this morning. We see man at his worst here, but we see man at his best there, didn't we? He was at the peak of his morality. He was at his best, but yet at his very best, man was still not acceptable to God. Because it was his own righteousness and not God's righteousness, which he was given in Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you this evening. Whether you think you're at the peak of morality and don't need Jesus Christ, or whether you think you're at the worst and that Jesus Christ would have nothing to do with you, let me encourage you that the grace of God reaches you wherever you are. The grace of God is shockingly offensive to some of us. Thirdly, I want you to notice that the grace of God is astoundingly extensive. It's astoundingly extensive. We read the promises there, didn't we? There was a promise of the place. That was the land. There was a promise of the people, of all his descendants that were to come. There was a promise of the plan of God, that he'd be involved in the plan of God to bless the nations. And there was a promise of the protection and the presence of God with him. Now, the place, surely he's just left the place. He's just, he just made a mess of that place. He's just getting out of the place. The people, well, you know, he doesn't even, he doesn't even yet have a wife. So how on earth is God going to do this? He says he's going to be involved in the plan of God, that his family is going to be blessed. Well, he's just ruined his family, hasn't he? He's just split his family. He's just made a mess of his family. And then he's promised the protection and the presence of God. Surely that's the one that must have really felt he needed at that time because he was in fear of his life from his brother. Perhaps some of those promises were, were way down the line for him. He didn't even know what they were. They were way down the line. But boy, did he need the promise. Did he need the promise that God was going to be there to protect him? What that must have meant to the ears of an exile, without a home, without a family, without any clarity of what was going to come next, and God promises to be with him. Now, the Bible tells us that we haven't yet seen what God has prepared for us. Isn't that wonderful? We haven't seen the fulfillment of all those promises. But just as Jacob was at his lowest, this is what the Word of God says, where sin abounds, grace abounded much more. Isn't that wonderful? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. This was an extensive promise. Same promise. 
given to the patriarchs, given now to this man Jacob. What an extensive promise. What a promise of God. What a promise of God to you and me. Those who were outsiders to be brought inside to the family of God because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to forgive us. To give us new life. To give us hope for eternity. To give an inheritance that will never fade away. What an extensive promise. How unworthy we were of that promise. So the grace of God is surprisingly intrusive. The grace of God is shockingly offensive, thankfully so. The grace of God is astoundingly extensive. doesn't matter where you've been. The grace of God can reach down. It can forgive, and it can change your life. And the last one we want to notice is, the grace of God is amazingly impressive. It's amazingly impressive. What I mean by that is, it made an impression upon Jacob. It made an impression upon Jacob. We see the impact of grace in Jacob's life. Three things very quickly. I want you to notice the surprise that Jacob finds. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. That's a surprise, isn't it? That impressed him. That God was in this place. And he didn't know it. Perhaps you sit tonight or you listen online and you hear, surely God's in that place. Surely God is speaking to me. Surely that is God's voice. Surely that is not just the man who knows about my life. Surely that is God. God is in this place. And he was not expecting it. Matthew Henry, the old commentator, says this. We sometimes meet God where we had little thought of meeting him. No place excludes divine visits. Should that be in a fish, on the road of persecution, up a tree like the man's a case, at the well like the Samaritan woman, or at our bedside, or in the hospital, or in our sadness, or in our bereavement, or in our sickness, and we meet Jesus Christ. Just turn with me very quickly, because this little passage I thought was wonderful. You turn to 2 Kings, just for one verse, 2 Kings chapter 5. You'll know the story well. It's a story of Naaman, who was the commander of the Syrian army. He was, the Bible says he was an honorable man. He was a great man. He was a mighty man of valor, but there's a big butt in his life. But he was a leper. He was a leper. There was something out of step in his life. And this little girl, this little servant girl says, listen, send him to the man of God in my country. So Naaman goes. And in verse 11, this is Naaman's response when he's told to go out and dip in the river Jordan. He says, but Naaman became furious. And he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, 
he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over this place and heal the leprosy. Naaman is going, listen, let the man of God come out. Let him wave his hand like a magic wand and let him heal my leprosy. I'm not going down to the Jordan. I'm not going down to the Jordan to dip. Surely there's, there's better rivers in my country. And sometimes we're disappointed where we meet God, aren't we? Perhaps we're disappointed that God is there and we're expecting something else rather than the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nain was expecting something greater. He was looking for something spectacular. He was looking for something more impressive. And he got a simple answer. And sometimes as we go through life and we hear the gospel, we're looking for a bright light. Perhaps we're looking for a stairway. And yet God speaks in a still, small voice through the gospel message. It's not what Paul said in Corinthians when he walked into that mighty city, the city that caused him fear and trembling. He says, I don't come, within, come to you with any special words. I come to you with the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the only message he had. That was the only message that was going to change people's lives. That was the only message that could bear the weight of their lives and their sin. It was the message of the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to say that to you this evening. The only message that can save you is the simple message that we're all sinners, we're all like Jacob's, and the only way to be saved is to come and bow down and confess our sin to Jesus Christ. Simple message. Jacob was surprised. Yes, he was surprised. And sometimes we can be surprised that God speaks to us just in a simple, small voice. But sometimes it's not enough, is it? It was enough for Jacob here. The grace of God is amazingly impresses him. It impresses him. Firstly, in surprise. Secondly, I want you to notice it impresses him in fear. Verse 16 again. Verse 17. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. I think I would have been afraid. I think you would have been afraid. He says, how awesome is this place? You know, awesome is used very lightly today, isn't it? It's like, that was an awesome goal. Did you see that goal? Did you see that Manchester City goal yesterday after 13 seconds? Wasn't it awesome? It was good. But it wasn't awesome. This is awesome. This is awesome. That God would come in flesh to die on the cross for you and for me, that is incomprehensible, as we said this morning. Oh, it's oh so familiar, isn't it? But it's incomprehensible. And in the presence of God, Jacob is afraid. In the presence of God, 
We do not become casual. We do not become informal. There is nothing incompatible between grace and trembling. Isn't that what we sung? Was grace that taught my heart to fear and fears those that grace relieved? There's nothing incompatible with fear and the grace of God. I remember when I heard the grace of God or the call of God in my life as a 16-year-old, my legs were actually trembling. And that might be the case for everybody. If we read Isaiah chapter 6, we'll know the story of the call of Isaiah, won't we? And he sees the king. He sees a sinful king dying. He sees himself as a sinful man. And he sees the nation as sinful people. And he trembles before God. He trembles. And we should. We should tremble before God as sinful people. And yet in Christ, we know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But outside of Christ, the grace of God can make us tremble. And it should at our sin because we offend a holy God. So we see the surprise, how it impressed Jacob. We see the fear, how it impressed Jacob. And finally, we'll see the change or the commitment that it made in Jacob's life. Let me read a little bit from a devotional that I read, and it quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor who was executed in a Nazi um, concentration camp, Flossenburg, just before it was, just before they were liberated by Allied forces. He wrote a little book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he talks about cheap grace. And he finds cheap grace as this, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, of communion without confession, of absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. There was nothing cheap about the grace of Jesus Christ. There was nothing grace, cheap about the grace that reached Jacob. And it made a change in his life. You know, if you meet Jesus Christ and it does a, bring a change in your life, then it means that you've never really met him. Jacob was changed. Look at what he says. Verse 18 to 22. You will see that he rose up early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put on his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it. Jacob's, Jacob's worship changed. His worship changed, and you will see as he gets to the end of the chapter, he's saying that anything that God gives him, he'll give a tenth back. His attitudes have changed. Grace left its mark on Jacob. It left its mark in surprise. It left its mark in fear. It left its mark in a change in his life. Now, God had much to do with Jacob yet. He didn't become perfect overnight. God had much work to do with him, but a change started in his life. It's called, a word called, which we don't hear much of now, it's repentance. Jacob's life was turned around. It made a change. He started to worship God. He started to give to God. And Bethel had left its mark 
on Jacob's life. I wonder, have you ever been impressed by the grace of God? Have you ever heard the call of God as he speaks out to offer his forgiveness and promise of forgiveness and a new life? Jacob did. The grace of God reached into his life and changed. And I pray that the grace of God will do the same for those tonight who don't know Christ. And for those of us who do know Christ, we need the grace of God every day, don't we? Ian said that, my grace is sufficient for thee. We need it every day. And it's there as a promise from God. Thank you for listening. We're going to sing our closing hymn. It's called Grace, Tis a Charming Sound. Let's sing it well. Let's think of the words carefully as we sing. Thank you.